Melody Kinney, and you are listening to UpZoned. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of UpZoned, a show where we take one big story each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we UpZone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, an urban planner in Kansas City, and today we welcome back Daniel Harrigus, Senior Editor for Strong Towns. Daniel, welcome back. Great to have you. Thanks, Abby. Always fun to do this. So today we are going to be covering what I think is kind of a fascinating follow-up to an article that we covered back in the summer of 2020 about wildfires in California. So this one is published in Politico by Deborah Kahn, entitled, California Continues to Face Wildfire Risks. Insurers Think That They Have the Answer. So what I think is kind of ironic about this current headline is that back uh, in 2020, when we were talking about this on the show, that article was entitled, They Know How to Prevent Megafires, Why Won't Anybody Listen? And it was describing the frustration that people who are working on the ground day by day on forest fire management, they were ultimately frustrated because these fires had been caused by decades of overzealous fire suppression and the lack of controlled burning efforts and this recognition that the situation is really only going to get worse. So unfortunately, California has now needed to be reactive to the situation rather than proactive. And the state has been pouring a lot of money into fighting fires and clearing out brush from the forest floors in recent years and really just trying to respond to the current situation. So this article points to another approach that I would say is both reactive and proactive and doing what politicians, I guess, can't do, which is to discourage development in these really hazardous areas in the first place. Insurance companies are starting to recognize that they cannot continue to insure properties in high-risk areas. And in California, some 40,000 homes have been destroyed in recent years, and companies have actually stopped insuring nearly a quarter million properties. So according to this article, this is likely to expand over to the mortgage side too as lenders follow suit and start to react to property values being impacted and having issues with mortgage insurance. So, you know, even more recently, insurers are really starting to argue about being allowed to incorporate future risk projections into their models rather than going off of previous risk of previous decades. So this is a move that is very controversial and would basically raise rates even higher than they're already raising for a large number of property owners in the state. So it's getting a lot of pushback from consumer advocates who want to preserve the state's control over insurance modeling and rates, and state legislation would essentially raise insurance rates in a housing crisis, and that is not a very popular political move for elected officials. So that's all to say, you know, I I think the best way to kind of sum up the article was a quote that they published by Bob Hardwig, who is the director of Risk and Uncertainty Management Center at the University of South Carolina's Business School. 
Um, And he's quoted at the end of the article stating that absolutely nothing will deter people from moving into some of the most disaster prone corners of the United States. (laughs) So we talked a little bit offline about kind of why people live in disaster prone areas. And you happen to live in Florida, which I know has some of its own insurance quirks. The way that the article frames this is kind of around these like really wealthy, exclusive enclaves in California, where it does kind of feel easier to begrudge that market because if they were paying the true costs of the risk, then they probably wouldn't be choosing to live there. Maybe they would have enough money to to live there anyway. But I think it is worth pointing out that there are disaster prone places across the country that may not necessarily have that same market. And so there is a little bit of nuance there. (laughs) You know, I I live in Florida. I live in a coastal city. And I think we're a little bit ahead of the the California curve on these insurance issues. Um, And the article addresses this, too, because Florida had this crisis after Hurricane Andrew all the way back in 1992, where insurers pulled out of the market. A bunch of people couldn't get homeowners insurance. Because the insurance companies were looking at this and they were saying offering homeowners insurance in Florida is a losing proposition for us. And the state stepped in and heavily intervened. And so now there's this kind of, you know, Frankenstein system with a whole lot of state intervention and private insurers that only operate in this state and no other state. And we do pay a good deal for homeowners insurance. And there are other requirements related to hurricane safety, like you know, windows, new windows for your house in Florida are ungodly expensive, things like that. So there's been this attempt to price the risk of hurricanes into the market. I think the insurers are still scrambling to keep up with what the risk is turning out to be. I mean, nobody nobody has a crystal ball, but it does seem that the trend is toward worse and more frequent natural disasters this century. And California is certainly grappling with this, with the trends in wildfires. And So yeah, what the insurance industry is trying to do is get out ahead of it and say, our business model only works if we can charge rates that incorporate the actual risk that these properties face. I I have two impulses here, you know, as there's a policy wonk side of me, there's an almost economist side of me, not that I'm literally an economist, that says, great, I love this. You know, there's a part of me that reads headlines like, it's going to become prohibitively expensive or impossible to get homeowners insurance on a house way up in the the hills where there are going to be wildfires in California or a house on the beach in Florida. And I think, good, that's the way it should be. And, or even, you know, the, the insurance industry and the banking industry, like they're going to solve the problem for us. The government can't, they're going to make it just impossible to live in these places where nobody should be living. And then there's a realistic side of me that says, Politically, I don't see how we're going to let that happen. The insurance industry isn't going to be allowed to resolve this using pricing by pricing the risk into the market. Um, Even if they can, even if they can model it in a way that does that, politically, I think it's a non-starter. And I think that the political article that we're discussing here hints at some of the reasons why that is. Some of the it hints without saying it at the populist backlash that is going to intensify as people actually do get hit with these insurance bills or get unable to find insurance at all. And so there's a preview of it. You know, in the article, there are quotes about things like, um, you know, people framing it as a consumer protection issue. And are we really just going to let the insurance industry tell us what the rates ought to be and tell us what they think the risk is? We're going to let them take advantage of poor Californians 
who have sunk all this money into their homes. And I'm not trying to be snarky here. I think that there is a populist narrative that is emerging that says we need to save these people, whatever the cost. And it runs counter to the reality that we have built some really unsustainable places that where, where nobody should be building. Yeah. Well, and nobody wants to be the person left holding the bag at the end of the day. I mean, the people who have invested in these places, you know, there there's most certainly kind of a reflection of the sunk cost fallacy, which is, you know, this human tendency to follow through on something even if it's bad for us, just because we've invested so much time and money and effort into it. So this current situation in California and in other places where, you know, it's really not sustainable to continue things as usual, they're going to be inherently risky, but it's really difficult to really face the <laughs> the inherent outcomes of of building and risky places. And I kind of understand that because there is personal attachments to places and there's financial attachments to places as well. And so there, there is a level of, of understanding that, you know, if you bought a house in California in a fire prone area, you, you know, number one are, are seemingly left holding the bag financially. And you also may be attached to this place and you are trying to defend it because you pay your taxes and you pay for your mortgage. And so you think it's worth worth saving and worth upholding. And the insurance companies, in a sense, they are trying to correct for the true costs. But the people who bought the houses in the first place maybe didn't understand what the true cost was because it wasn't being accurately reflected in the first place. So it's kind of a catch-22. And it's it's an issue that I think relates to not only places in California like this, but other areas of the country that are really not sustainable in the long run. Eventually, somebody is going to be left holding the bag. I think you make a really um, important point there where you say, you know, people bought into real estate in these places, homes in these places, without an accurate understanding of what the risk really was or what the cost really was. There's a broader Strong Towns theme there even outside the context of natural disaster, where when you are used to having something subsidized for you and you believe that that is the normal order of things, and then whether it be the government or an insurance company or a bank or whatever comes in and says, well, we're going to take this subsidy away that you shouldn't have been getting, that that feels like an injustice. And we see that all over the... I mean, we see that with all of the costs of the suburban experiment, where People genuinely don't know what the cost is of the development pattern that supports the place they live and the way they live, because that's been hidden from them. It hasn't been reflected in decades worth of their tax bills or their personal finances. And then all of a sudden the city comes and says, well, we can't afford to pave the roads. We're having trouble running the school system. You know, we, we, we need to hike your property taxes. We need to do this. We need to do that. We need to cut back on services. And people are outraged and they feel like they've been tricked. The natural disaster context and the disaster risk um, that's increasing right now because of what's happening to the climate, I, that that just turbocharges these issues that exist in a broader way with the whole suburban experiment. There's going to be a lot of populist anger when people realize that they've been left holding the bag or realize that they haven't been paying all along 
for what they've enjoyed. And I think the politics of that have the potential to play out in some really ugly ways. I get angry about it and I don't want to go on like a, a populist rant here. But I, as I said, I, I live in Florida. I, I watch as like even now, this year, I have watched our county government grant variances for people to build beach houses, like multi-million dollar beach houses, closer to the dunes than they should be allowed to. And they get their variance. And it just feels like the skids are greased for, you know, you know, money talks. At the same time, you can read headlines about coastal Louisiana, where you have indigenous communities with a really distinctive culture, a really distinctive relationship to the land in the place that is losing land to the ocean at a faster rate than anywhere else on earth, just about. Um, And nobody's coming to bail out these people. And they're just, you know, wholesale abandoning, you know, these communities, really poor communities in coastal Louisiana are just rapidly depopulating. Viscerally for me, there's an injustice there. And I want to believe that making people pay for their own risk, pricing the risk into the insurance policy, like that, that is part of the answer. And politically, I'm just, I'm really cynical about whether, whether it's allowed to happen. You know, the article talks about how California doesn't currently allow insurers to use future risk modeling to set insurance rates. And it's because of this fear that, you know, they're the, we can't trust the insurance companies. They're going to take advantage of people. This is a rapacious industry. There's going to be this really powerful impulse to be, we need to protect people and we need to protect the lifestyle that they think they've earned and they've bought into, even if it means doubling and tripling down on really bad investments. Well, that's why I say that this is a both a reactive and a proactive kind of approach by the insurance agencies, because if, if the pricing for insurance had been accurately modeled in the first place to reflect true risks, that would have, by default, probably changed the pattern of development And it probably would have hindered a lot of the development that's happening in areas that are risky anyway. Um, Now things are just being exasperated and they are, you know, the insurance companies as well as the public sector are both being reactive to the situation in a way that is not very unified. And, you know, over time has been kind of piecemeal anyway, it seems. And so what the insurance companies are trying to do now by stepping in is to kind of try to self-correct these issues reactively. And it's totally understandable that that is not going to be pretty because they're trying to accurately reflect the quote-unquote market or people or consumers, you know, <laughs> what what the true costs are so that behavior would over time correct, hopefully. But the government interventions that have been happening over time have kind of hindered or slowed this kind of correction in order to protect people. I'm not really sure how you unravel that because it's it's not a it's not a clear path. It sounds like insurance companies can choose to just not not insure homes in certain areas, but there, there is a program where the government can step in and provide some level of insurance to people and kind of continue things as normal. There is a question of how you manage disinvestment in certain areas. You mentioned kind of poorer areas where this has happened, but in places like California, how do you 
how do you manage disinvestment in places where people are incredibly wealthy and the real estate is the most is exclusive real estate in the country? And there's really just not a political will or even institutional will to pursue uh, a triage <laughs> approach to these areas. It's it's the political will. You know, it's not in those kinds of areas. You know, you think about the hills of Malibu. To me, it's not a question of human suffering. The people who own homes in the hills of Malibu can afford to go own a home somewhere else. But there's a whole lot of public investment supporting places like that and no political will to have the conversation. You know, the political response I'd like to see, I mean, I think it's twofold. And we talk about this a lot at Strong Towns. We talk about the idea where you have to have the Band-Aid and the, the systemic treatment at the same time. The conversation we need to have is one where we talk about, okay, we're going to save people, not places. We don't want people to to suffer, to, you know, to, to lose everything they have because of natural disaster. So we execute some sort of a managed retreat from these places that are just too disaster prone to, to justify investing in. We say we're going to stop pouring money into public investment in these places. We're going to sort of withdraw from making sustaining that infrastructure priority. And we're going to, I think there needs to be some sort of a program of like offering inducements to people to move, offering buyouts to people to move um, and capping those. So you're not just reimbursing some $5 million mansion owner, you know, on a hillside, the, the full cost of their, their real estate. But this is politically really, really tricky. Like that's what the, the optimist in me who says, you know, we can solve these problems technocratically, you know, that wants to see happen. I think the reality is going to be a whole lot messier. You know, I think that at some point, some perfect storm of disasters maybe causes a string of bankruptcies in the insurance industry. And maybe it happens in California. Maybe it happens on the Gulf Coast. I don't know. Um, but something that requires major government intervention, something that requires a federal bailout, and then that gets sorted out. And, you know, if it's federal, if people in, I don't know, Michigan are asked to paid to bail out a bunch of California homeowners who lived in way up on a hill in an ecosystem that has always been adapted to wildfire, they might not be too happy about that. So there are a bunch of different ways this can shake out politically. Um, as a strong towns advocate, what I want to see is, you know, I, I will support policies that aim to help the people who are going to be hurt by this without propping up the insolvent pattern of development or the you know, the, the pattern of development that just physically is literally unsustainable, cannot be sustained. And at the same time, we need to double down on building resilience and building wealth in places that are going to be there for the long haul, um, because that is the wealth that is going to allow us to, to minimize the human suffering as the places that aren't going to be functional in the long haul unwind. Yeah, I, I think that that's a really good approach. That's a proactive thing that can be done just to try to build more resilient places. And when it comes to the issue of propping up existing places, I agree with you that unwinding that is probably going to be a more reactive rather than proactive approach because nobody's going to vote for the politician who tells them 
that, um, you know, where they're living is not sustainable and that they can't have their house insured in a place that burns. <laughs> or that the fire truck isn't going to come to their house. They, no effort is going to be made to save their house yeah. when it does burn. Like, imagine that conversation, I think, as far yeah, as Yeah, and, and that's not a pretty conversation. And so I, I agree that, you know, there are things that can be done more proactively, but when it comes to unwinding things, there is kind of a reactive component to this that is less controllable uh, from a town, strong town's perspective, at least I think. And it's just something that I think we're just going to have to let unwind and kind of figure itself out. Chuck likes to say um, in his writing, you know, if ultimately if something can't be maintained, it won't be. And the process by which it ceases to be can be pretty chaotic and pretty ugly. But there's there's a basic reality there. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting point, too, about how if, if this is a federal issue, kind of how how that shakes out politically um, for areas that, you know, maybe are not as disaster prone or more disconnected from the coastal areas and, you know, really what the sentiment would be when it comes to to bailing out some of these areas. Although, you know, as we were talking about before, it is important to include the nuance that they're not all areas that are disaster prone are the wealthy Malibu suburbs in California. There's a lot of places where people don't necessarily choose to live in the disaster prone areas. So I think we'll leave it at that. Um, We'll be interesting to see how this shakes out. And I'm sure that articles like this will come up in the future. This is not the end of the story. But before we get done, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of the show where we can share anything we have been reading, watching, listening to, anything that's been taking up our time these days. So, Daniel, what have you been up to? Well, you know, now that you ask me that, I think I know where my kind of like, you know, the the eat the rich subtext of my remarks in this episode came from, because my wife and I finally watched Squid Game this week. Um, and I know we're behind the curve on that. I'm usually I'm behind the curve by several months on all of the big trendy uh, Netflix series. It was it was excellent. It was intense, and um, it it put me in kind of an eat the rich mood. And if you know anything about the story, I don't need to explain why. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's really funny because last week on the down zone, I shared that I was watching Dope Sick on Hulu, and if you haven't watched that. Like, I don't know any other show that if that doesn't put you in a eat the rich kind of um, perspective, then I don't know what will. Uh, I feel like I was angry for like a week after watching that. Um, So this week I took a little bit of a break (laughs) from watching television. It's actually just been extremely cold and I have been trying really hard to embrace the cold these days. It's not easy for me. (laughs) I'm really jealous that you are in Florida. Um, I've just been layering up and taking really long walks with my dog and just trying to, just trying to learn to love it. It's really hard, but (laughs) I, this time last year, I, I took a, I just took a weekend trip down to Florida because I couldn't take it anymore. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. I feel like I need to go into some nicer weather. 
Here's my hot take that is just going to anger, you know, everybody in our audience for different reasons. But I think that <laughs> as, as, a, as a born Minnesotan, I, nobody complains about the cold like people from the lower Midwest, like Kansas City, St. Louis, yeah. places where it gets kind of <laughs> cold, but not all that cold. Like, <laughs> You know what? I feel like it's because it only gets this cold for maybe six weeks out of the year, truly, because it it's moderately cold probably all the way through December. And it, it can even be warm in December. But I feel like January to February, that's when it just dips to nine degrees and below um, to the sub-zero temperatures. And it's just unbearable for a relatively short amount of time where I think people who live up north are more used to longer periods of time of being very, very cold. And so they, they just embrace it more, I guess. I don't know. I, I will go for a hike or go cross-country skiing when it's like five degrees above zero in Minnesota. <laughs> because if you don't just accept that that's what your outdoor recreation is going to be, like you'd go insane. The winter is long enough that you just have to learn to to get out in it anyway and dress for it and enjoy it. Like maybe, maybe that's the... I can't do it. I, I don't have it in me. <laughs> I will not go north of here. <laughs> well, if you decide to come down to Florida, hit me up. Let's uh, grab a drink somewhere. <laughs> yeah, totally. The sunshine sounds really nice these days. So, <laughs> okay. Well, uh, thanks so much, everybody, for listening. And thanks, Daniel, for joining me once again. And keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.